evidence and answers. The Hippocratic Oath explicitly prohibits doctors from giving their patients poisons to end life. So traditionally, euthanasia and assisted suicide have not been considered legitimate medical acts. How much do we know about the euthanasia movement? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zukran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the arena of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today on Evidence and Answers, Pat will interview Dr. Craig Nakatsuka and discuss this topic of euthanasia. If you're unable to hear this entire broadcast, all of our messages are available on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Here's Pat now with part two and the conclusion to this interview with Dr. Craig Nakatsuka. But let me tell you a story. I actually was talking to a group of women and just saying, you know, I think I should look in the internet and see if there are any stories of teenagers who may have been influenced for suicide based upon states that have it legalized. One of the women turned to me and said, Dr. Craig, you don't have to go looking in the internet for that. I said, why? She says, I have my own story. And I said, what? She was from Colorado. And her then 23-year-old son, in the midst of a recent romantic breakup and a diagnosis of an autoimmune disease that eventually turned to be not all that serious, got into a deep depression. The mother was frantic, tried everything from peer counseling to getting him to see a behavioral therapist. And, you know, 23-year-old often resists that. Fortunately, he was able to get out of his depression and is doing well now. But the mother stated that in the throes of his depression, he stated at one time, Mom, if the elderly can end their lives by suicide, why can't I? So I think it's very, very real. And in Oregon, yes, the suicide rate is substantially higher than the national average. Yes, you know, and there are numerous people who fall into <laughs> states of depression and have wanted to die, and we thank God that wasn't made available to them. I can think right off the top of my head, Johnny Erickson Tata. You know, I, I believe it was a skiing or diving accident. She became a quadriplegic and pleaded to die for God to end her life, and we thank God that she didn't do it because look at the tremendous impact that she has around the world now. And she's just one story. We have a very remarkable local story, and that's of right in this area, Pearl City Senator Breen Harimoto, who was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, went through multiple surgeries and chemotherapy, etc. It was very rough on him. And he stood on the Senate floor as one of only four senators who voted against this bill on the Senate side and gave a very impassioned testimony how if this was available to him in the throes of his depression when he got that initial diagnosis, he probably most certainly would have taken advantage of that medication. And now he realizes this is his calling now, that he can serve in the Senate and really live out his life for Christ. And he literally has said, because of this bill and seeing the ramifications and speaking against that, he now has found his calling in his legislative career. I thought that was so exciting. Yeah, so, Doctor, you're saying there is a slippery slope in regards to the liberalization of restrictions on the eligibility for euthanasia. It tends to expand and incorporate yes. more. Explain that for us. 
Well, I think that Netherlands experience is a graphic example of that. But again, we go back to our neighbors to the north in Canada, because in Vancouver now, basically they had wanted to at least have more of this tilted towards assisted suicide where the patient, you know, has to take it on their own. But that quickly has already changed where now they try to get it as self-injection, you know, oh, because trying to swallow that, that many medications and with all the variation and absorption, et cetera, and you might throw that up. Of course, it's more convenient there for a doctor. Can you have these self-injectables so that now they have the syringes pre-filled that someone can give it to them? And of course, pretty soon, if that doesn't do it, let's have a provider come out and do it to that. And so it's pretty much tilted all the way to the most common practice, it appears, is euthanasia rather than assisted suicide. Right now in Canada is for physical illness, terminal illness, but I can see quickly where this will expand to what they will, the other side, the advocacy groups will say, yes, but the mental ill are suffering and we should allow them to die the same way. In fact, the American Psychiatric Association wrote a strong position statement. And, you know, that's a very liberal group. American Psychiatric Association against euthanasia. And the question I was curious of was why did they put a position statement against euthanasia when in America the legalized states are physicians to suicide? Well, they made it very, very clear in their position statement that they do not want to be the active agent in euthanizing somebody involuntary who has mental illness. Strong statement for, from our own American Psychiatric Association last December. Well, doctor, you know, there are those who say that it is the compassionate answer to those with terminally ill diseases who expressively state that I want to die or the elderly who are suffering in tremendous pain and state clearly, I want to die. Euthanasia is the only compassionate answer there. What do you have to say to that? The elderly especially, the two things that the elderly state when they are reaching the end of their lives, by far the two most important things to them that trouble them is, number one, the fear of the journey, the fear of dying. There are many, including believers such as ourselves, that are comfortable with death but they're uncomfortable and uncertain and fearful to some degree of dying, that whole process. And the second thing is the elderly do not want to be a burden on others. And therefore, there will be those in times of despair who actually would say, I wish this would all end already. And without having the resources of which, as I said, by experience as a palliative care physician supporting patients and caregivers in all these other areas, certainly the chance for abuse, certainly the chance of someone not, individual doctor, not recognizing that someone is depressed and making that. And we know that there's depression that can be reversed, treated well. And many, many of those that are in despair for a moment saying, I wish I would end it all, change their minds very, very often. In fact, for wow. even those that have requested this and have gotten the prescription in Oregon, only 60%, 63% go ahead and use the medication. The, the other 36% change their minds. That there will be far more inappropriate deaths, in my mind, if this is legalized. So for family members who are looking, maybe at an elderly mother, 
who is saying, I want to die already, I want to die already. And what you're saying is the family should go out and get, find support of people like you who can counsel and help in this area instead of being all alone, just looking at that situation with their mom in the house. Is that what you're saying? So that is a wider issue, and that is the types of bills that we want to advocate for is wider awareness, training, et cetera, for providers that can give this kind of support where they're very good at assessing for depression and referring someone. They are very good and comfortable with end-of-life conversations, and they know who to refer for the type of support that people need, including spiritual support. We just need a lot more training and awareness in this area, and we actually probably need to advocate for even taxpayer dollars, Medicaid funding, so that we can have those that are even most vulnerable, the poor and those that are socioeconomically marginalized, for whom life is already hard no matter what, and would otherwise succumb to this. That, that would be sending the wrong mes message to say, okay, you have this option for you for ending your life. It is really trying to continue to work with public programs and private programs in supporting these people, including better housing, etc., for those that are disabled and those who will become disabled as they reach the end of their lives. For caregiver support for the working ones that are there, that is far, far more important as a society to support than it is for legalizing a quick ending of one's life. Well, what about those who say, I'm in too much pain, so let's end my life. I'm just in too much pain. <clears throat> You're saying that there are ways that we can really alleviate that kind of pain. And in fact, if you look at the Oregon data, that is like number five or number six of the reasons for which people said they wanted the medications for. American medicine has gotten so good that virtually all symptoms, whether it's nausea, whether it's shortness of breath, or the big one, pain, can be well controlled without necessarily just simply drugging somebody out. There takes training for that. I've had there uh, definitely extra training to do that. And I say that with a lot of confidence. I say that with the fellow local palliative and hospice physicians here in the islands and in this state who all agree with me that we can do such a good job that there is virtually no one who we cannot palliate their symptoms. And in fact, if we cannot, we already have legalized means where in increasing the medications with the primary ethical purpose of relieving their suffering. If in that process someone passes away, the intent was to relieve suffering. And that is legal, that is ethical, and that is most appropriate. I actually have had to use that just twice in my whole career. So there is no place in my mind for needing this option. So tell us some more about palliative care, and what's the difference between that and hospice? So palliative care does not necessarily mean having to have someone fit the definition of terminality, which hospice does have, which is someone saying that a person's prognosis is less than six months to live. Palliative care is there for people with advanced illnesses, or chronic disease who may or may not be in the last chapter of their lives. And it really is a holistic, comprehensive attempt to support individuals and caregivers in this situation 
with physical symptoms, with psychological symptoms, with spiritual and existential support if needed, and even in psychosocial support. I want to give just a great example of that. I had someone who was in his 40s that I was called upon two or three weeks before I retired from Kaiser as a palliative care consult. He was having a bad rejection of a bone marrow transplant twice, and his basically the rejection has gotten to the point where it was actually taking over his body. It was just a complete rejection that affected his entire body. And he was in the nearing the end of his life, and it was affecting his lungs. And when we went in with a chaplain, a social worker, myself, and a nurse to do the consult, he was in pain and some shortness of breath, grimacing a little. And the nurse came in and said, would you want a pain shot? And he said, yes, I, I really would need one. As I went over what was most important to him, he said it was that he wanted to continue connecting with his three-year-old, building a legacy with him, and he wanted to be sharp and alert as much as possible in order to do that because he knew that eventually he was dying and may have just weeks to live. And I told him at that point uh, that for that to happen, you really need to stay in the hospital for now because it will take such precise delivery of medications to hit that window, that balance where you can still be alert and appropriate and be able to relate to your son and still have your pain symptoms controlled. And I said, but if you get to the point where your mind is starting to get a cloudy or anything, where would you want your final place of passing away be? He said, at home. I said, we can assure you. I gave him all the details of this, how this could be done. We went over the financial things with that, how hospice would work. His facial expression turned into from grimacing to just complete peace. When the nurse came in to say, do you want, I'm here to give you your shot. He said, no, I don't need that shot anymore. I feel comfortable. And then it is the words of his wife that I will never forget. She said, doctor, now you give me hope. You give me hope. I had not changed her husband's prognosis. I had not come in with a brand new medical procedure that could have extended his life, nothing like that. But somehow by conveying the information and the reassurance of how this could go well, even until his last days, was received as hope. And that's how we believe we as a society, as a community, as healthcare providers, can really aim for towards giving people hope, even towards their last days. Yeah, you know, doctor, in our culture today, we want to avoid pain and suffering Correct. at all costs. Yet, you know, that's part of the life. It's part of the Christian life. You know, James has considered pure joy. My yes. brothers, when you face sufferings of all sorts. And so, not only as humans, but especially as Christians, to deal courageously with those issues facing the final days, even if there's pain and suffering. How we face that is a tremendous testimony to our faith in Christ, isn't it? And the most exciting part of me doing this advocacy is to start to see that churches slowly begin to realize that, that as they talk to fellow elderly individuals or others that are vulnerable, and really speak to, number one, the dangers of this bill, but number two, how their values can resonate on how they can be there for those that are suffering, 
something happens even to unbelievers and they really see a reflection of the Lord through that. Frankly, that has been the most exciting thing that I've seen through my advocacy against this bill. It, it's been wonderful to see the church come through as a church and resonate to the community, our values. I, I take it now as an opportunity to share our values, not to simply push against such a bill. Yeah, that's great. You know, although we're called to value life, we're not called to extend life at any and all costs, isn't it? When is it appropriate to say, okay, we're going to turn off the machine or we're going to, it's time to let dad go? When is that appropriate and not euthanasia? Okay, that's a very good question. So just to clarify, certainly we are not talking about someone who is about to die or is unconscious, say from a massive massive stroke and i'm talking about very massive because people have certainly survived strokes and come back some but who would be in a coma with the unlikelihood of uh, returning to coming out of that coma if someone has advanced directives and have made their wishes known that in such a situation they don't want their life prolonged by artificial means that is certainly a legal right to have the artificial machines withdrawn now, as far as exactly when that is to happen, that is not easy to answer. Certainly there are people who have been inappropriately continued on artificial life support who actually start truly suffering where their skin starts to break down and other things happen where that is prolonged suffering. But that's balanced against the fact that indeed miracles happen and there are those that have you know, come out of such a situation. But just to make it clear, the withdrawal of artificial life support, if that had been a person's wishes in the context of death about to occur or being unconscious without any likelihood of returning consciousness, that if that is their wishes to be withdrawn from artificial life support, that is not considered to be euthanasia, whether it's within the Christian context or just the secular context. Yes. Now... Most importantly, Doctor, you know, what are your thoughts on the relative silence of the churches in, on this issue? You know, as much as certainly we have fought against uh, same-sex marriage, we certainly have fought against abortion rights, etc. Looking at how the Netherlands, you know, experience is right now, I almost see it as with society globally saying that everything is for individual rights, that we have the right to be our own gods, and that therefore those who are intolerant of such rights perhaps should be included in those that are unfit for society to be living. We can then expand the slippery slope from not just those that are terminally ill to those who have chronic illness, to those who have mental illness, to those that are simply consuming resources in society, but they may expand to the situation where those who are felt to be just generally unfit for society, meaning us, us who are the intolerant, could be included in that. And so I realize that as I'm kind of raising my voice against this, that in the bigger picture, this could be similar, and I by no means am saying I am anywhere near this person, but this could be as if metaphorically this is a Bonhoeffer back in Nazi Germany times pushing against what he saw was the incoming genocide of a people. 
And to see the silence of the Lutheran Church in that time, is it truly all that different than now, that if the Church is silent, does this in the next generation could happen, where truly we get a situation where even we are persecuted and the Church was silent because at this very point in time, we did not try to intervene. Yeah, that's a great point that you bring up. I mean, you know, when we switch in the medical community from the value of life position to the quality of life position, then, you know, the next question is, well, who determines who's got the quality of life or not? So it's really a bigger battle than just euthanasia, as you're talking about here. Well, I guess in our final moments here, doctor, what are some, I guess, some final words you can say to those facing terminal illness or the end of their life and their mortality and they're struggling they're saying man i want to end it now or family members who are looking at mom or dad or grandpa and grandma saying well man it's going to be a tough road why can't we end it now what are your final words of exhortation to them so i try to live what i practice even my children now know that if they were to hear it for their grandmother etc What they do is they do the physical acts of touch, of love, of massaging them, of giving them kind words because they know that they are actively participating in a good end and they can be redemptive in the sharing of suffering in that way and provide hope for those that are struggling with that. And that's how I end it is we even as our family try to instill it as family members to really come alongside those that are suffering and provide hope. Yeah, you know, there's a maturing process with the whole family when they participate in that. I can tell you just a brief story. Got a good friend whose son just graduated from college and was ready to launch his career there in the mainland United States. But my friend's mother here was really suffering in the final days of her life and asked his son, hey, we're having trouble taking care of mom. We got to go to work and all this would you come home and help us with grandma in her final days? And at first the son said, no, I got my career. I just graduated. There's no good jobs in Hawaii in my field. Come on, dad. And he said, son, I understand, but we really need your help. Would you come home? And the son, you know, sacrificed, put his career on hold for a few years and came home to help grandma. And there was a tremendous maturing process in that young man. He turned from a selfish, career-focused man and the transfer as he took care of his grandma in his final days. Was it tough? Oh, yeah, you bet. But there is a actually a blessing that occurs, Amen. like you say, to everyone in the family who's involved in that process. Hallelujah. Amen. Great story. Well, as we end, you know, Doctor, we're all going to end up meeting our Maker someday. And so what is the message of, of true hope here? You've given us uh, that we can face death courageously, But ultimately, what is the ultimate message of hope? For everything that I've said, I think the distinction between a non-believer and believer is that a non-believer can actually hear this thing and try to do it on their own. But we all know that we simply can't do it except with God's grace. That's the difference, isn't it, is that we just humanly speaking can't do this. And I think it's appropriate that I will say that this is being recorded on Good Friday. And that's because as hard as it is in the suffering that took place on Good Friday, we look forward to Sunday, resurrection. And that is the ultimate hope that allows us to live on every single day, even in the midst of suffering and trials, 
because we have a hope that we don't have to try and do this and grit our teeth and do it by ourselves. Yes, and death is not the end. That indeed we have a Savior who has conquered sin and death in a historical event of the resurrection. And so there is hope, eternal hope, that can never be shaken or never taken away for every believer in Jesus Christ. Well, we want to thank Dr. Craig Nakatsuka. Doctor, for people that want more information on this issue, where can they go? Go to Hawaii Family Forum, the website there. There will be, this bill will come up again, I, maybe not next year, but the following year. And there's a lot of resources there of how to be involved and active. Great. That's the Hawaii Family Forum and also a Focus on the Family. That's another great website. And here at Evidence and Answers. So, Dr. Nakatsuka, thanks for being with us here on Evidence and Answers. Thank you. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers radio broadcast. We hope you enjoyed Pat's show today. If you find this broadcast to be of a great value to you, please consider partnering with us. Evidence and Answers relies on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, you may do so right there on the homepage of our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll find we have a wide variety of resources available to you, including articles, additional audio, and Pat's books. Be sure to share our website with your family, friends, and your church. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, please visit their website at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ right here on Evidence and Answers. Evidence.